Well, it's me again. I hope none of you are like, oh Lord, honey, go start the car. Well, I will say that our lead pastor has made it back to Georgia with his family. As of 11 o'clock last night, they got in really late, and the initial goal was for me to preach these two weeks, and so he's well-rested, and I have no problem handing this completely back over to him come next week. I don't know about you, but it has been a week for me from an Uh, a sinus infection that happened randomly earlier in the week that led to a canceled staff meeting, that led to canceled lunches. Uh, Tori has bronchitis, and so it's just been a week for us around the office. I was walking past John and Tori's office earlier, and there are just mounds of empty Starbucks cups all over the place. And so it's been a week for us as a staff, but At the same time, we're here, we're ready to hear from God, and I hope you are as well. As I prayed at the very beginning, I just pray that our hearts are receptive to the truth that God wants to speak into our lives this week. What I want to do is I want to fast forward a little bit. Last week we touched on Micah chapter 2. We're going to go all the way to Micah chapter 6. So you can go ahead and either turn or click there in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6. We're going to be focusing specifically on verses 6 through 8. But before we do that, I want to give a brief recap of what has already been covered in the book of Micah and what we are kind of leaving behind for a second. We'll probably circle back around to it, but since we're beginning in Micah chapter 6, I want to provide us with a little bit of history as to what's going on. Also, just so you know, you're going to see a random gentleman walking around the worship center today taking pictures. Do not be alarmed. That's just some stuff that we're doing for the website, so please no photo bombing. Don't jump in front of him and be like, so we can't use that, all right? So, chapters 1 and 2 of Micah, we've already gone over these. These develop Micah's accusations and warnings against the nation of Israel and its leaders because they are engrossed in heavy forms of idolatry and injustice. Now, we saw last week, this is chapter 2, as we walked through that, that Micah had a word against the people, a word against the corrupt prophets, but he had a word of hope. Now, the hope found in chapter 2 of verses 12 and 13 is the appearance of the breaker. This is the messianic figure who would lead the faithful remnant of the nation of Israel out of the corruption they had been subjected to. This is what Jesus accomplishes for us by his triumph over sin and death. He exposes our sinful hearts that are prone to wicked scheming and various forms of idolatry and offers us his sinless life in order to stand completely blameless before God the Father. This is what Christ does on behalf of us. His sinless life for our sinful lives. That's what Christ accomplishes for us. In chapter 3, moving on, Micah further rebukes Israel's leaders and prophets with a warning that an oppressor is coming to wipe them out. The Assyrian army captured the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 B.C. and sent its citizens into captivity. This is a historically verifiable event. 
Chapters 4 and 5 speak of God making Israel the meeting place of heaven and earth where all the nations of the earth will know that he alone is the one true king. But only after the southern kingdom of Judah endures their years in captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. So God will then bring them back to their land where the messianic king, Jesus, from the line of David will come and rule over the restored people of God. I love what Paul says in the book of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that, me, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So this brings us to chapter 6, where Micah circles back to this theme of warning God's chosen people. The nation of Israel is essentially on trial for various forms of corruption, which will ultimately come to its ruin. So that's a lot of biblical prophecy as well as world history to kind of get us where we need to go today, but it's very much necessary to help us understand the context of what Micah is speaking into. So let's pause for a brief commercial break and then we'll jump right back into chapter 6. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good, what is good. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require? To act justly and to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. To act justly and to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6 the Lord. 
Lord require of you? What does the Lord require? To act justly and to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. To act justly and to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. To act justly. Good Game is a Nashville-based singer-songwriter. And several years ago, he was having a rough time cutting it because that's a very competitive environment. And so he realized, if I take my love for Scripture and intertwine it with catchy melodies, silly songs, things of that nature, I can legitimately minister to children with this avenue. And so, Slugs and Bugs was born. And if you've ever been to the Turner household or driven in a car with the Turners, we listen to Slugs and Bugs a lot. So much so that I'm naturally gravitating towards it myself when I'm alone by myself in my own car. But the interesting thing about it is that's a very catchy melody. And it's specifically speaking about the passage that we're going to be handling today. So, I've tricked you. You're going to take the melody, and if you don't remember a word I say today, you're going to associate it with Micah 6.8 and the melody that we just heard. And so my prayer for us today is that we take that song and we take the truth that God wants to speak into our lives today and mesh those two things together, and it causes us to have an attitude shift in the way that we go about our day. So every person on this planet bears the imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation and thus share a unique relation to him unlike any other created thing. Alistair Begg says, The Bible tells us that we have been created by God and for God, yet we have been separated from Him and have scattered in the imaginations of our own hearts. You're going to hear me refer to Alistair Begg a lot this morning because I've drawn specifically from his treatment of this particular passage because it's just so good. And if you've ever heard Alistair Begg preach before, he has a lovely Scottish accent. So he's just one of those guys you can listen to all day long. So you'll hear me quote him throughout today's message. But you and I inhabit a culture that is becoming increasingly immoral. That's no secret. We see things around us that are cause for question. More and more people are embracing the idea that it's primarily up to the individual to define what morality is. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and and this is the only method appropriate for human beings to live in harmony with one another. But the problem is 
that objective morality does not originate from the human race. Therefore, we have no say in what defining it means. We cannot define it for ourselves. Morality is defined by the eternal author of life, the creator and the sustainer of all things. If you remember last week, I quoted A.W. Tozer who says, the most important thought you will ever think is what you think about God. What you think about God has to be consistent with what is revealed about him in the Bible. Take Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, for instance. God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. This is not up for discussion. God himself determines what morality is. If it's truth, it belongs to God. He is the one who determines what morality is. And as a follower of Jesus, we don't attach anything to our identity with God. Truth originates from him. And so he is the source. This world is a fractured place. And it's inhabited by a fearful people. Do I get the vaccine? Do I not get the vaccine? How serious should I take the Delta variant? Should I avoid certain areas due to potential rioting? When will people stop getting stimulus checks and child tax credits? All the way from the social and political to the bigger questions. Do I legitimately believe that Jesus is my only hope? Will he make everything right that has gone wrong? The anxiety of all this can be completely paralyzing. But there is a word for us today. As I mentioned before, 700 years before Jesus arrives on the scene, Micah is prophesying to the nation of Israel in all of its corrupt practices. And as we continue, we're going to see that. Real quick, this has nothing to do with anything, but has anybody noticed that the service industry is significantly understaffed right now? It doesn't matter what you do or where you go, you are going to be waiting. And if you work in the service industry, my hat is off to you. You have to have a significant amount of patience in order to deal with what's going on today. But, but I say this because I've had two separate encounters now where I've gone to both McDonald's and Chili's where I'm working specifically with one person who is supposed to be filling my order and they have their AirPods in. And I'm just like praying for patience in these moments. This literally happened. I'm engaging in a conversation with this person about needing ketchup or something. And the guy pulls one of them out and says, huh? And I'm thinking to myself, you have to be kidding me. The same thing happened at Chili's not a month later. Same situation. Huh? Okay, that's completely free. But... The service industry is significantly understaffed today. But it contributes to the, the weirdness and the awkwardness of everything that's out there right now and everything that we're kind of 
going through as, as, as things begin to stabilize and we begin to reintroduce ourselves to, to former rhythms, right? It's like, it's like we don't know what to do. Everything's awkward. We don't know how to interact with one another. And so it's just very odd, very odd. There is rampant confusion in the aftermath of the pandemic. Socially, politically, emotionally, and even theologically, if we think about it. So as we turn to chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, we're going to see that God is absolutely present, still waiting to pardon and delighting to show mercy. But there is still a mandate that we, as his people, are responsible for carrying out. So chapter 6 reveals a courtroom scene. God speaks to Israel in verses 3 through 5. Follow along with me. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. Also Aaron and Miriam, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, applauded and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God is prompting his people to recall his faithful acts. All the way from the beginning when he triumphantly led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And they plundered them and God led them through the parted Red Sea on dry ground and he closed it in as charioteers and soldiers went after them, defeating the nation of Egypt and bringing the nation of Israel, his covenant people, to the other side. Or instead of pronouncing curse, he curses, he pronounces blessing in speaking of Balak and Balaam. Or your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. Shittim is where the nation of Israel camped prior to entering the promised land, and Gilgal is where they camped the first night when they were in the promised land. So what did the priests do? This was during flood season, and the Jordan River had risen to very unsafe levels, and the priests set their feet in the water, and the water parts again, and the nation of Israel enters into the promised land on dry ground, and then it comes back. God is telling the people to recall and to recount what he has done for them. <laughs> and it's no different today. God is calling us to recall and to recount the Jordan rivers that we have crossed in our lives. How he has faithfully led us from one situation to the next. We can't forget his faithfulness. We can't forget his faithfulness. In verses 6 and 7, one commentator notes, Micah speaks, but it's as though he speaks on behalf of the people as they ask what their responsibility is in light of God's faithfulness to the covenant. There is irony here. The section is meant to contrast external religion to which they've been clinging with true religion. Follow with me in verses 6 and 7. 
with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Similar circumstances occurred in the book of Amos. The people were essentially saying, we've done all the good things, and we have all the good stuff, so surely this is acceptable. But I want us to listen to God's response in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, in the message paraphrase. Listen to what God says. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. (laughs) When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness. Rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. Can I shoot straight with you this morning? If this isn't a swift kick in the butt to American Christianity, then I don't know what is. God has no interest in the multiplication of our empty religious acts. I need to repent of it. You need to repent of it. Our church needs to repent of it. God doesn't want it. These are not acceptable offerings to bring him. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. That's 1 Samuel 15, 22. Or King David states in Psalm 51, 17, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. It's a lifestyle of obedience that God wants from us. So what does a lifestyle of obedience actually look like? We go to verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. There's the melody, right? You're going to be singing it all day long. What does He require of us? To act justly. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what obedience looks like. Acting justly carries the idea of true religion. 
Justice, according to the Bible, has to do with the fulfillment of every obligation being aligned with God's moral law. There it is. Morality originates from God. He is the one that defines it. Therefore, we don't add to or take away from his definition of it. He is the one that defines what objective morality is. And the more our culture pushes a, a new and better you by Tuesday, the less we are concerned about biblical justice because our primary focus is ourselves. Listen to what Micah's contemporary, the prophet Isaiah, says. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Jesus, the one whom Micah and Isaiah are referring to, is the only hope for a truly just world. To love mercy is to love kindness. This is the carrying out of spontaneous acts that benefit others because the character of Christ is continuing to be formed within us. This is what loving mercy looks like or loving kindness. It's over-tipping the waiter for the horrible service you just received. It's using your roadside assistance for the guy that flipped you off for driving too slow when he has a blowout a few miles down the road. It's choosing not to slander a political figure on Facebook because you know that Jesus is the one responsible for establishing justice upon the earth. It's being patient with the person who's filling your order with their AirPods in. It's loving the wayward son or daughter and letting them know there is always a place for them at home when they have nowhere else to go. It's advocating for racial reconciliation and rejecting infanticide because every person carries the image of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Loving kindness characterizes the people of God. And if we can't exhibit loving kindness in here, within our fellowship, we sure can't do it out there. I'm talking about the American church. Let's get our stuff together. And let's love people. Let's love people the way Christ loves people, so much so that he gave himself for them.
let's willingly give ourselves to others. Walking humbly means walking in submission to God's will, no matter what happens. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. At my former church, there was this lady named Jerry Martin. And I can think of no better story than walking humbly with God than this. If I were to close my eyes and visualize uh, the stage of the church that Julie and I just came from back in Texas, I can see Jerry Martin standing over here. She's one of our senior adults. She loved the hymns. She sang the new stuff. She loved sitting in the exact same place every Sunday until her health began to decline. And something I've grown to love specifically as a minister is I love hospital visits. And I know that sounds very weird, but I've grown to love them because it opens up so many interesting conversations with people in a moment of vulnerability. And I had the opportunity to go to Harris Southwest Hospital where Jerry Martin happened to be. And I'll never forget this exchange with her. I sat on her bed. I held her hand, quoted some of her favorite passages of Scripture. And I asked her, Jerry, are you afraid? Are you afraid? And I kid you not, with a smile that would make death fearful itself. She says, no, God has been good to me and very soon I will be in the presence of Jesus. That is a clear picture of what it means to walk humbly with God. Knowing that you have laid every intention about yourself down before him and saying, whatever comes, I'm going to walk humbly with you. Walking in humility requires open hands offered to God, acknowledging that everything you have down to the very next breath you're going to take belongs to him. Alistair Begg goes on to quote John Newton, the famous English preacher and hymn writer, saying that Micah 6.8 is often a misunderstood verse. He says the verse is, is so often attempted without the gospel, proclaimed in place of the gospel, but can only be properly understood by the gospel. Begg states that acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly are not the things that contribute to our justification or you being made right with God, but they're evidences of our justification. It's only by the righteousness of Christ that I can act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with my God. 
Aside from 2 Corinthians 5.21, my favorite passage in all of Scripture comes from the book of Colossians chapter 1, talking about the preeminence of Christ, how he takes first place in everything. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross, therefore we can act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Listen to how the book of Micah closes. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God are evidences of our justification. And Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross so that we can truly embody these characteristics that God calls us to. Christ is the one who makes all the difference in the world. And especially in a culture that is so confused about what morality actually is. We have a message of hope to give to people. And Jesus is the only one that can make sense out of it. Would you pray with me?